amplifying the things we've been told to shut up about in as many languages as possible. Our races might be different, but our struggles, universal. The only way to make the world hear our stories is by telling it we are not crazy, you are. Welcome to the podcast where women call the world out and all the bullshit they make us feel crazy about, you know, things that we speak on. And then in response, people are like, yeah, that's not really a thing. Well, newsflash, it is a thing. And we're going to talk about it because we're not crazy. You are. My name is Awazi. And on this episode of We're Not Crazy, You Are, we're going to be talking about online gender based violence. And we're also going to be talking about emotional justice. My guest today is so awesome. She's done so much work around this. Um, and I just think that I'm in awe, mostly because like, I don't, I don't think I have like full context, but she's just going to get to that in a bit. Her name is Esther Ama. Hi, Esther. Hey. <laughs> Hi there. How are you? Hi. I'm okay. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm sitting with a, a gorgeous Accra night sky behind me. A nice fan. Nice. feel cool. I got a nice... Drinky drink on my right hand side. So I'm sipping and talking and sipping and talking. Girl, tell me about it because I have a drink too. <laughs> Anyways, um, I'm so happy to be chatting with you today. Um, and I'm happy that you're in that relaxed state because we're going to get into it. But before we get into it, people that are listening do not know who you are. They just know that you're about to tell the world that the world is crazy. And you're not crazy because you're not making these issues up. They actually exist. So before we get into like talking about like the issues and all the things I want you to introduce yourself, like be as proud as you can be. See, you know how when people are introducing you, they're just like, oh, conservative about it. Oh, you know, she was this and here and she was that and there. Nah, nah, nah. I don't want that. Right now, I want you to introduce yourself to everybody as listening and be as proud as possible. Like talk about all the things you have done, all the things you're looking to do. And you should have the audacity of a white man. Are you ready? <laughs> I hear you. But you know, you know, you know who really has audacity, though? global black no. women. They have to have Girl. because of the history that we've lived. So I don't yeah. need to aspire to be any kind of white man. It is it is better and badder to be the black woman that I am. So we're going to start there. That I introduce myself as a global black woman who is proud to be just that. That's where I'm going to start. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so I'm Esther, Esther Armour. In terms of titles, you would, my title would be that I'm director of the AMA Institute of Emotional Justice, a global institute that is implementing emotional justice, which is a visionary change agent framework and a framework for racial healing. We do that globally here in um, um, Ghana, the US and the UK. I come to this work as an international award-winning journalist and a playwright. But in the most specific, mm. basic terms, I would say that I'm a, glo- I'm a global black chick storyteller. And the nature of my stories are a strategy to make the kind of structural change that is about wellness and health and well-being for global black people, specifically global black women. And the nature of the stories that I am focused on and passionate about and purpose-filled are about changing narratives and reimagining a world where I am my Black, complex, um, global self is at the center of a world that denies me and marginalizes me and tells me that I should be content to be at the margins of the margins. But I don't play that position. I play the actual position in history. I don't play that position. 
history, mm, yes. my, my beautiful mama and the world that I'm from tells me, the ancestors tell me, the center is where I belong. So I don't aspire to be mainstream. Mainstream is some global black women-ish, and that's where I stand. I like that you say the center is where you belong. Like, girl, inject it. Put it in my veins. Okay, um, on that note, I think that you've given like a very juicy intro, and I feel like anyone listening should be able to like get the full picture of who you are, what you stand for. And I, I love the confidence. Like, I love it. So um, I know that you do, you do work primarily around um, emotional justice. And that is a concept that, although has existed for like 15 years, it's still kind of new. Like, I don't really know, like, the depths of it. Why are emotions so important in this, like, conversation? What is this about? It's really simple. The Right now, we're dealing with this global racial reckoning. We've all been indoors for so long because of the pandemic. And so mm -hmm. emotional justice is about recognizing and reckoning with the role of emotions to shape and uphold the systems of inequity that are the result of a global history that shapes how we see ourselves as global Black people and how we see ourselves as global black and white people. That kind of shaping, it shapes how we lead, how we learn, how we work, how we live, how we engage, how we exchange. And the way that we think about the world is we think, you know, there is the legal, the intellectual, the environmental, the geographical, the physical. And what we do with emotional justice is say that the emotional is a powerhouse that is underestimated at all of our peril. And when I say emotional, I'm not talking about just personal feelings. We're all human. We all have feelings. I'm talking about mm -hmm. the emotional as structural. I'm talking about the way emotions uphold systemic inequity. I'm talking about things like emotional patriarchy. Emotional patriarchy is a system and a society. Yeah, like I was going to get into that. What is that? Yeah. So it's a emotional patriarchy. It's a system. It's a society where essentially we cater to privilege and prioritize the feelings, the vulnerabilities, the fears, the anger, the rage, the pain of white men, no matter the cost and the consequence to everybody else. And how does that manifest? It manifests because we infantilize white men, no matter how heinous their behavior, they're treated as children, they're indulged, they're having a bad day, or it's even when they're a mass murderer. Uh, that's true for white men. Yeah. Sadly, it's too often true for black men as well. What does it leave for the rest of us? What does it leave for us, particularly as women? It makes you um, the perpetrator of the violence that's visited upon your body or upon your spirit or upon your person. It makes you responsible for the violence that men commit. It means that you should carry the, the, the blame, the load, the weight of men's bad behavior, unprofessional behavior. And this notion of a certain kind of temptation and absence of control is all about the infantilizing of men. And at Emotional Justice, we just simply say we don't play that. We don't play that because you cannot build a thriving space, whether it's an institution, a society, or a world, when we have emotional patriarchy at its center. So Emotional mm, Justice so I is guess saying... It's like the thing with, with seeing Black women as like a rock, where they're like, oh yeah, yeah, as a Black woman, you're always supposed to, you're always supposed to be strong. You're always supposed to be like, you know... Okay, so sometimes I'm going to lose my shit. And why are you going to judge me for that? Because everybody loses their shit. Why do you not hold them to the exact same standard you hold me to? Right. And they don't because that's the nature of systemic inequity. 
It's exactly that. Mm. There isn't there isn't a singular standard that everybody is held to. There is the standard that was created and is upheld by white men, and everybody else has to navigate what it means to not be a white man. And that is why dismantling um, whiteness and white supremacy is so important because it means that instead of having a moment where you, for example, lose your shit because you're having a human moment, it becomes yeah. an entire judgment. It makes you, it's professionally disqualifying. It's treated and you are then treated with suspicion as a threat, as a danger, as opposed to a human woman who is having a moment, a temporary emotion, as all human beings do. That's why it's important. That's why it's crucial, honestly. Yeah, you know what's crazy to me? It's crazy that like, even while this exists, like um, with white men being like the metric, right? And the ones that everybody caters to, it's crazy to me that even like, in like the black community, it's like, oh yeah, like I don't mess with black women, you know, they be crazy. And it's like, like, what are you talking about? Like, why does this have to be that black women have to play to a certain stereotype? And if they don't play to that stereotype, then you're going to be like, yeah, this is the acceptable way to be like a black woman. Why, why I are think there those rules for us? I think, and I think it's really important to um, say that all stereotypes have always had a specific um, intention and a specific role. And the role is to categorize because then once you can categorize, then you can demonize. And then if you can demonize, you can brutalize. It's all about how do you construct a world where you have one people at its center and then everybody else has to deal with the fallout from what that is. And for black women, um, it is, that the notion of your presence, your existence is supposed to be in service to men per se, but especially white men. And your the simple choice, the decision to say, yeah, I ain't doing that. That's not what I'm here for. That's not what I came to do, which is the absolute warrior spirit of black women, which is to insist on your joy, insist on being who you are, to try and find your way to yourself for yourself, even against all the crazy obstacles in the world. The fact of all of that, is what makes the world turn on you because you're always, always confronting and bracing yourself for the absolute violence that is whiteness in the world. And even if we're sitting in, in Accra on the continent of Africa, the legacy of colonialism means that you're still confronting whiteness, even if it's not manifest in a physical, physical form, a physical body. Okay, like, so I hear that and I feel you. And how was this, like, thought about? How did you think about it? And you're like, you know what? This is the thing I'm going to focus on. This is the thing I'm going to fight because, like, it's so important in X, Y, Z way. Like, in what ways does this manifest, like, um, that you would be like, you know what? Like, this is the section of the patriarchy I'm going to fight. This is the section that, like, I'm going to channel my energy in. Like, those kind of things, you know? I feel like there's just so much going on. And personally, I didn't even think about it up until... Up until I knew of you, I'm like, wow, this is interesting. Like, it actually is a thing. I was just like, yeah, but I've never really thought about it like this. So, so I'm curious, why? What sparked it for you? What was the moment that you decided that, you know what, this is the thing I'm going to like channel my energy towards? So for me, it really was um, a crossroads moment. It was really coming to see the, the simple reality that you could not PhD or legislate your way out of the trauma of what it has been and what it means to be a black person in the world. And the way the history that has shaped the world that we're in has a contemporary manifestation that shapes who we are and how we are right now. 
and that there was no amount of education, legislation, policy, rules, ideology that was going to get you out of that space. You could not take a bad ideology and replace it with a more rational, more rational, more reasonable ideology and have the kind of healing or well-being that was requ- that's required to have a thriving world for more of the people, which is the global majority, which is black folk. It wasn't going to work. And we had not in any way paid attention to the power of emotions to influence and impact your own journey as a human being, and then how that then expands towards family, community, society, education, all those spaces. For me personally, I got my education. I was a journalist. I'm somebody who was a journalist by profession. That's how I came to the Institute. I was born in London, where I lived and worked as a journalist for a period of years. And then I moved to New York and lived and worked there as a journalist for eight years before I moved to Accra. And I've been here for five. And so I learned a really powerful lesson that despite the education and, you know, being a a black chick who presented in a particular way, I could, there were ways and my progress and my path was still being interrupted and still, still being stalled. And what I needed to reckon with was my own personal Mm. family history of trauma and how that trauma was shaping who I was as an adult woman and that I could not get, there's no amount of education that can transform trauma. You have to engage it. You have to deal with it. And that it's not just personal trauma. It's that as a people, as a black people, that our trauma is historical, but it manifests in contemporary ways. There's been generational inheritance. And how do you navigate all of that? And so I had been on assignment. I was on assignment. I'd gone to Ghana for, um, uh, to cover an independence anniversary I'd gone to South Africa to tr- to cover the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Yeah. I'd gone to Philadelphia to do some coverage there. And as I was moving around the world doing this assignment, it became clearer and clearer and clearer that emotions and emotionality needed to be a justice project as far as Black people were concerned because we had such an intimate relationship with violence because of our history mm-hmm. and that because justice was a massive part of how we um, had to move through the world because there had been so much injustice. So we had social justice, we had civil rights, environmental justice, we had all these areas. And if black bodies are politicized and pathologized, since that is the realities, emotions are part of our bodies. What does that mean for how our emotions show up? So those things like those phrases, for example, we're all human. We're all human, we all feel. So at some point in your life, you're going to get angry because that's just a human emotion. But every black woman knows, no matter where in the world they're from, when somebody says angry black woman, we all understand what that means. Yeah, you know the trope. Yeah, Yeah, it's not not you're a woman who happens to be black and feels angry. No, we all know that it doesn't mean that. It's somebody Mm -hmm. highlighting that your behavior is bogus, that they should treat you with suspicion, that... How you, who you are is professionally disqualifying, it's punitive, it's judgmental. We all know all of those things. So what does that mean? It means that we've taken a human emotion, we've added race, we've added specifically color and race, we've added gender, we've added the context of the history of enslavement and colonialism and apartheid and turned those human emotions in a, into a category that defines an entire group of people I am a black woman in Accra. Yeah. There could be black women in London. There could be black women all across the United States. 
You say angry black woman, every woman knows what that means. And there's something inside of her that shapeshifts. That's part of what it is to recognize the power, not just of emotions, but emotions in the context of race, gender, history, trauma, and how they need to be reimagined so that they're not part of what upholds systemic inequity. Okay. I feel you. And I feel like um, with the way that people people describe like angry black women, it turns out to be that people are more violent towards angry black women, like the trope, right? Not, I'm not even saying like, oh, you know, this is a like thing for a fact because there's no black woman that like I would describe as angry black woman ever in my life, mostly because like people are multifaceted, right? There's so many things that people can be. And like, I feel like society just chooses to define them by just this one metric, which fucking sucks. I hate it. And I also think that the entire world is fucking crazy for just even for this thing to exist and for it to go on for like so many generations. I think that everybody's crazy, mostly because like we don't, we don't react that differently from everyone else. So anyways, um, my point here is while I think that that's crazy, it's a window for a lot of violence towards like black women. So when even people are saying, oh, you know, this person is an angry black woman, da, 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 I feel like they use that to be very violent. For example, if I were to get a job and someone came and said, oh, you know, Awazi, yeah, she's just an angry black woman. Da, da, da. I will take that as violence because that means that, that you're, you're fucking up my bag. You're affecting me. Um, you're, you're trying to stop me from getting that job. And that's the most violent thing you could do to a marginalized person anywhere in the world. So that, that, that brings me to like the next point that I would like to discuss, right? Um, what does gender-based violence look like um, in online communities? And I would be very specific to like Ghana, for example. What does that look like um, online for Ghanaian women? I mean, I think sadly it looks the way that it does all over the world. Gaslighting, trolling, um, threats of violence, threats of sexual violence, calling people names, um, going, talking about their body, their size, their weight, their complexion, Damn. their hair, their intelligence. Uh, it's all of those things. It's, it's the cowardice of only being brave behind a keyboard and a, and a handle and never, mm. never being the kind of person that could stand up to any actual issue going after what people perceive to be easy targets. Um, I think that what we have not um, taken account of is that when people pile on like that, that mm. there's, a human, there's a human person and that that kind of trolling takes a toll. How could it not? You know what I mean? How could it not on your, yeah. on your emotions, on your spirit, on your heart, on how you move through the world? And so for those women who are choosing to stand up, to be courageous, to um, use online platforms as spaces to challenge and to confront and to, to fight, uh, to fight back, to speak up, um, there's a really important need for, uh, for, for care um, mm. because that online, online violence is really serious. And then, you know, you've seen the way um, far, the far right, for example, and not just in America, but in the UK as well, across Europe, in fact, have absolutely mechanized. They weaponize Twitter. Um, yes. They weaponize social media. They mechanize that thing and they set it off after someone and with the, the absolute intention of just breaking that person down. And, uh, and the, de the devastating thing is that it works. It has worked because no human being mm -hmm. can sustain that level of assault and not be affected. It's just not humanly possible. And so here in Ghana, it's very much around threats. 
threats of sexual violence, people coming after you, talking about your body, your physicality, the tone of your skin, your weight, um, and coming and coming and coming and coming and coming. And as I said, it's really the the worst kind of cowardice. Because I would say, you know, you resort to those things because you don't have the intelligence to actually engage the issue that is being discussed. But despite having that kind of comeback, it doesn't change the, the, the pain and the challenge of people going after women like that in that way. It's, a, it's an outrage and it's not taken seriously enough. Not at all. How would you say that we could like make the online community just safer for women? Because like when you say people are getting threats of sexual violence, first of all, that's the most traumatizing thing that happened to me. Like mostly because like we all have, most of us have experiences, right? Like we've probably been like compromising sexual situations. And when someone threatens you like that, it's just like, um, wow. I don't know if they like, I don't know if they can make good of their threat, but like, I'm terrified. Like, and I'm instantly reminded of something I never want to remember. I'm just like, yeah, no, I would literally just like cry. And like, um, I giggle now, but it's not funny. Have you ever been like a victim of like online violence? Would you say? No, I haven't. I've definitely been, um, uh, people have definitely come after me for saying something. But I have a very specific rule, which is I absolutely do not, I do not engage. Um, the nature yeah. of the work that, that I do and the choice that I make is um, with emotional justice, I run an institute and we do thought leadership. So there are times when I'm yes. writing things that people deem are unpopular or um, saying things that people have a problem with. But I'm really specific about um, engaging a, the forum of my work which may be a column, it may be public space, and then putting it in the public world. But I'm not going to go back and forth with um, um, people who are being violent. But the blessing that I have had is that's not really been my experience hearing Anna. Um, and when people have come after me, I, I get very, I will be very specific and say, this is, this is simply an indication of your limited intelligence. And so go somewhere else and be um, unintelligent Girl, with someone again. else. Girl, <laughs> Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll clap back at your intelligence. I'm not going to yes. insult your person, your body, your parents, your family, or any of those things, but I absolutely will come after your intelligence because you don't have the courage to come after mine. Um, and so you think that if you say something um, insulting and offensive and hurtful, that I'll join you in that place, but I won't. I'll stay with the point that I was trying to make. But I want to also... Mm-hmm. The fact that that's the way that I approach it doesn't in any way um, um, negate the absolute trolling that I see, that I have seen with people that I know, with people who are doing a particular type of work that is absolutely heinous and outrageous and unacceptable on every level you can think of. Yeah, I know. Like, I feel like um, online trolling for, for, for us in Nigeria is just like terrible. Um, people call us like online feminists. Oh, all you Twitter feminists. You were not coming. I'm like, yeah, okay, say something else. Like, we are feminists. We are on Twitter, okay? And then, like, um, I think it's old, but I also think that, like, it's still very violent in the way that, like, it comes off. Um, however, like, taking this offline, I'd like to know, like, what real life looks like um, for a new woman. You've been there for five years. I know the story is um, different across the world, but, like, mostly similar. However, I've never been to Ghana. I don't have context. Um what are the things that Ghanaian women are like facing um, in real life? They're just like, yeah, this thing is crazy. Um, I see this woman, they're trying to move forward, but like this thing is bringing them back. Like, do you have context? 
So I think it's very similar whether, um, I mean, having, I've worked in uh, Lagos and specifically in, in, in VI and Ibadan. Um, and mm-hmm. so what Ghanaian, so thinking about what Ghanaian women face, I think absolutely gender violence is a massive one. And gender violence, not, I mean that in across the board, physically, um, in spaces of education and work, uh, in, the, in a society that believes that um, women should occupy a very specific place and puts up every obstacle known to man to prevent them from moving forward, while sim- simultaneously promoting itself as, some, as a nation that is very gender sensitive. We, our president is a gender champion, has won all these accolades for gender. Yeah. And yet this is still, you know, I, I, some, one thing I always say is that if you can get through school as a girl in Ghana um, without being sexually assaulted, that's, that's a challenge from, 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 prior, from elementary all the way through to university. Uh, it's yeah. hard because the nature of the way sexual violence happens, so much, of, a, a portion of it, a high proportion of it happens in schools. Um, and wow, so really? that's, that's, yeah, that's a real challenge. And part of why it's a challenge is there's such a normalization of, um, there's such a normalization of men's approach to men's sexualize, sexualizing underage um, girls. There's such a normalization of it that, that, the idea that it just happens and it's something that you're just supposed to just kind of put up with and navigate and it's just what you're going to have to work with, deal with, is really, really, um, de- it's devastatingly standardized. I remember when I, when I was first here, I was teaching. I was a media comms teacher in different universities. And it was the single yeah. um, most thing I heard from my students, which I did not know and I didn't understand before I started working here, that sexual harassment, sexual violence in places of um, education and work was such a massive issue. And of course, being a woman teacher in a, in a uh, university, I had a lot of contact with both young women and young men. And what would happen is that the young women would start to, as they started to open up and as they started to speak, it was one of their greatest concerns. How could they be the kind of journalists they wanted to be? And what would, they do, what, what would happen if they dealt with sexual harassment? And I did not understand the extent to which it was an issue. And they educated me about just how much yeah. of an issue it was. And it was, it was appalling. It is appalling. Girl, let me tell you, we did like sex for grades and it was the most explosive thing. I mean, we knew it was bad. Like we just didn't know how bad. And then like we eventually found out and it was like, whoa, like, so it's not just me. I feel like um, the realization that it's not just you, like this thing happens all over the place is mind boggling because it's like, I can't stop this thing. I'm trying, I'm doing the work to like see how we can like get this thing in the middle or even like name and shame at the very least, less name and shame, but it's just built to like protect their systems bills to like, just make sure this thing never ends. And it's like, why do we even deserve this? Like what did, what did we do as women? What do we do as black women to ever be in this position where it's just like, yeah, this is what you were born to do. You were born to be like, you know, harassed uh, and stuff like that. Like it, it just sucks. I hate it so much. And um, I would like to know, like, if you were speaking to, like, 12-year-old Esther, what would you say to her? And this is outside of just, like, harassment, like, just in general. If you were going to give 12-year-old Esther advice on how to navigate life as a Black woman, what, what would you say to her? Um, so I think 12-year-old Esther was in school in London. And I think what I would say to her at 12 is, is you're a Black girl, be a Black girl. 
We are far too mm. quick to turn girls into women before they're ready, before they're grown, before they have any understanding of what that is. And then that comes with a whole bunch of expectation and judgment and weight they, that they have no business carrying. You know what I mean? I, I mean, I, I think that I was somebody who had my own um, fragilities and was trying way too hard to be perfect. Um, and so I would say to t- the 12-year-old Esther, being a girl is about discovery and learning lessons and making mistakes. And it is the space to have um, a million second chances. And I know that you don't think that you have any second chances, but there is no joy in being perfect, even if you were ever to become that, which you are never going to become. But there's so much joy in discovery. So Mm. chill, you're really going to be okay. And I can see the future and I can tell you, you're going to be a badass. So you may as well have fun now. (laughs) I know. Like, I I feel like I'll probably give myself the same advice, just like frame differently. But like real quick, though, like when you when you were saying that advice part, you were just like, yeah, you know, I'll tell her it's like just like chill, like you're a black you're a black girl. And there's something that just like struck me that was very profound. Like, you know, just just in the way that black women try to navigate. I would say the emotional patriarchy. Do you feel like there is a, there is a popularity in feeling like, Oh, you know, I have to conform to a certain kind of behavior. So people don't tag me as, or do you feel like that that's not a thing? There is no question that black girls, black women, you're nurtured to find your fullest value in being service to it, being in service to other people. You're nurtured that you're, um, expected and rewarded and affirmed for being submissive, for being obedient, for not questioning, for all of those things. And the truth is those things don't keep you safe. They just don't keep you safe. They make you a target for predatory behavior. Um, and they don't allow you well, to you grow. Like as a being like subdued and being like according, being up to code, basically. Is that what you mean? It doesn't keep you safe? Yeah. No, not not being subdued. I mean, being submissive, being um, always and only obedient, questioning or challenging nothing, not asking questions, Mm. you know, and that you're all, all, I mean, I think black girls are nurtured um, to be of service and in service and to find their greatest reward in being of service to anybody other than themselves. And the idea of being in service to yourself is always categorized and demonized in punitive ways. So it's selfish. You're only thinking of yourself. You're not a good girl. All this specific language, which is designed um, for you to feel that if I'm doing something that just gives me and only me joy and pleasure, that that is a bad thing. I think that is one of the most dangerous things that we nurture black girls to believe. Mm. And then to grow up to be women who find their only reward in service. So I want to be clear. I'm yeah. not saying that. Oh I'm not saying that service doesn't come with rewards. I'm saying that yeah. we have created a world where black women are supposed to find their only reward in being of service and in service to people outside of themselves, and that can make people yeah. exhausted, broken, broken down, depressed, resentful, all of these things. And so, yeah. the joy, joy of the you know, passion because of belief, because of purpose is all powerful. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about being nurtured to believe that you're only worth as a black girl and as a black woman, 
is to be of service, that you literally have no other worth than that. Mm. I really remember. I remember as a, as a black girl being in a um, in, um, uh, Sunday service in, in church. And the, yeah. um, we were, they were doing Sunday school. And the minister literally said, came in and said, to all, so to all of the girls, all you have are your looks. So for some of you, it's what? over. Absolutely happened. And I remember telling, and this is why I have a badass warrior mother. I was a kid. And I remember saying that to my mother, <laughs> saying, how did, how did Sunday school go? And I told her what the pastor said. And can I just say, I never was allowed to go back to that class. I never went back. And I love that for you. I love that. And shout out to your mom, okay? Mommy, if you're listening, shout out to you. You're a real one. I feel yeah, like she- this is so ingrained, like in almost everything we do, like you hear it at church, you hear it at school, even in your relationships. I think that the, the loudest indicator of this, even the way like um, black women's partners celebrate them. It's funny because you see like people trying to celebrate like a black black woman that you're you claim you're in love with and you know it's her birthday or whatever and the posts are like oh you know happy birthday to my rock my hardest supporter my this my that and while I don't think it's a bad thing to love someone with all that support I feel like I have noticed a trend um emotionally the world does not see black women outside of who we are to them they don't see our personalities they don't see that oh you know um, shout out to this person that loves fashion. Shout out to this person that is just like so X, Y, Z. It's always like centering people. And by people, I mean men. And it's so just, I think, I think, it's just bad. But I think that, I see, I think there's a difference though. I think there's a difference. Yeah. There is a beautiful, mm-hmm. there is a beautiful thing in being in relationship with someone and feeling supported and being supportive. Yeah. And I think yeah, that, that there's, a, there's, a, there's a beauty and a, and a power in that as somebody who has, had that and been that, there's a beauty and a power in it. I think there's a yeah. difference in, there's a difference in um, celebrating what somebody is to you, you know, personally and how they move in your life to, mm-hmm. to, the, to the notion that the only kind of relationship that is valuable is when a black woman is being um, willing to take all okay. this nonsense yeah. and all this wahala and a yeah. stay despite the, despite the wahala and the measure yeah, so of her loyalty is how much crap she can, she can take. And I think exactly. that's the difference that I would make. And I think it's exactly. important. I think it's really important to make difference. It's important not to collapse things and make them one or the other. Yeah, but I, I do think that's, that's what the, um, the real challenge and the real issue is. Yeah, I because think it's honestly, like, that you're actually clarifying here. And I think that like that just probably like, brings perspective into what I was trying to say. I feel like the trend I noticed is mostly like, oh, the measure of someone's awesomeness or that their loyalty is just how much bullshit they could take. I was just like, yeah, well, we're a bit more than that. Like, please see. Right. And, and, I, I, and like I, the world owes us that. Right. And I think and I think that the, the power of um, the beauty of black women is that we shout each other out in all kinds yes. of wonderful ways. And similarly, yes. but as, and similarly, we can be as judgmental of each other in equally devastating mm. ways So we do both with equal passion that can be really both painful and be really you know, powerful. But I think, like I said, I think there's a there's a there's a beauty in somebody celebrating loyalty and devotion and being supported and being supportive, all of those things. But I think that's, there's a difference between that and this notion that that's the definition of a successful um, relationship, just how much crap you can yeah. take from a single person. Yeah. And that's the measure of your um, worth. Because it's, first of all, it's just not true. And we all yes. know of those spaces and those folks who are just, they're just not happy, they're depressed, but they wear 
the performance of the perfection yes. of that relationship like an armor. And they use it. Like in Ghana, it's a badge that people beat each other. It's a shield and a sword that they beat each other with, even when they're incredibly unhappy. Because again, the notion of a perfect marriage, a marriage that looks a particular way, is how a woman's mm-hmm. value is measured, both by women and by men. Do you know what I mean? And so I, I think part of the, yeah, the reality is navigating all the ways we've been taught to see and value and think about ourselves and unlearning that so that we can be not just more free, but in being more free, we're more powerful, we're more fly, we're more loving, we're more lovable. All of those things become true. Yeah. I think that there are people that are going to listen to this podcast and be like, what are they talking about? They're just making issues. And, and, and to those people, if you're listening to this um, and you know those people, I just want to tell you that you're crazy. We're not crazy. This is a thing. It's affecting our lives. It's costing us so much. It's extending our bandwidth beyond where it's supposed to go. And for this reason, I'm very thankful for people like Esther who are doing the work, trying to push for change, doing projects of educating people, telling stories. I really enjoyed the story about your mom, by the way. Um, um, Telling stories about like black women and just trying to say that, you know, this thing, this emotional justice thing, it's important and we need to get it. And we need to stop pandering to the emotions of certain people um, at the expense of ours. We need to, the world needs to see us differently outside of just like, oh, reactions and um, tagging us as that. Thank you so much, Esther, for your time. Thank you for coming on. Um, do you want to say pleasure. anything else in conclusion? That um, Thank you, first of all, for the invitation and having a chance to spend time. Um, Emotional justice is a framework that was really developed with the well-being, the thriving um, of black girls and black women at its heart and at, at its soul. That um, we are a world, we, we, we live in a world where when black women are well, there is nothing more badass on the planet than a well, powerful um, black woman going through the world being free. The journey to becoming that is the work of emotional justice, and we do it in partnership in all kinds of ways. Um, I would also say, though, that for us as Black women, to learn to honor the parts of us that are fragile and that are broken, um, Mm. and that when it's hard and it gets so hard and the noise is too much and you can't block it out and you don't know how to get through it or where to go, to do two things is to, we've got to make We've got, to, we've got to figure out how to make some peace with not being able to just keep on keeping on, um, but also mm. to hold on because we really do need every single one of us to get through. We really need every single one of us. So for those moments when you feel fragile and you feel broken, um, take a moment because really the ancestors really are rooting for you in your what you may perceive as your worst state, in the worst space, in the worst place, the ancestors are still rooting for you, which means, you know, you matter. So um, hold that, hold that dear. And uh, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for coming on. And I would just say like to black women listening and women all over the world that are listening to this, don't shrink to pander and cater just to the emotions of what is supposed to be the gold standard, the white man. 
You're okay. You're valid. You matter. All right. Thank you, Esther. You can tell um, the world where to follow you and where to keep up with your work, um, your social media handles and stuff like that. No problem. So Twitter at Esther Armar and at the AIEJ1. Insta on the Instagram, it's at E-A-M-A, A-R-M-A-H, E-A-M-A, and Emotional Justice. And on uh, Facebook, the Amma Institute of Emotional Justice. And LinkedIn, just my name, Esther Amma, and my company name, the Amma Institute of Emotional Justice. Those are my socials. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Esther. I think that you're doing amazing work. I admire it. And I'm going to go forward. Um, recognizing and calling out all the bullshit of the world around emotional justice simply because of you. I think that's the impact you have. So thank you. My name is Awazi and I have been your host here today on the We're Not Crazy You Are podcast, um, calling out the world on their bullshit. Like I said earlier, you can follow us um, at Document Women across social media platforms. You can also follow me at the Awazi. Let's have more conversations, like bring things up that you think are more that, that are important to you things you think that we should talk about, women you think we should document, the stories you think we should tell, I'm happy to tell them. We're happy to tell them here at Document Women and we're very committed just making sure that the voices of women are kept heard. Alrighty, thank you and have a good one, Esther. Thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to We're Not Crazy, You Are proudly brought to you by Document Women. Be sure to follow our social media at Document Women. Also visit our website at www.documentwomen.com.